Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Hello, Utah Street! Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the Masson newsroom, it is... The Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortensen here with you. If you're watching live on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, you can tell that we are now wearing our Masson polos. Looking pretty spiffy, I would say, Brendan. Spiffy's one word for it. You you are not feeling comfortable. No, I am not. Uh, no, I, I'm not. I'll say it. Have you have you seen the Seinfeld bit? I think it's literally in the first ever episode of Seinfeld about the make or break button of a shirt. I bu- yes, and I think I know what you're talking about. There, and yeah. I think that the, the 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 overarching problem with the the polos, and and we're grateful to have the polos, is that <laughs> the top button is a make or break button. So Seinfeld Jerry ex- explains how Seinfeld, you know Jerry, you know comma Jerry explains how the top button above, you know, like the top top button, the second to top button is so high that it makes you look a little dweeby when you have it done but then this the next button is so low that when you undo it makes you look a little bit you know thank you for the demonstration professional right and so you have to find a balance there and it's yeah. difficult so i've been going with the second button but boy do i look dweeby yeah um, i think the issue I with mine it, here is i don't have any chest hair to show off but right you know it's i i feel like i need to to, to button it back up yeah I, I think the real issue with mine here is is rather than the buttons is the is the sleeve length i feel like i've been transported back to a simpler time in my childhood when uh my mom would present to me like a box of clothes that uh, my older cousins would give to me as hand-me-downs and they were all too big and it was always like well maybe it'll fit in like five years and in the meantime it can just be a sleep shirt or you can wear it if you're doing stuff in the backyard and getting dirty that that is the size of this shirt. But then right you sprout it up, and now you're to- much taller than I am. Sure, and my shirts still don't fit. Apparently, right. well, yeah. I growing up, I mean, my shirt, my baseball jersey, that was part of the reason I think I was bad at baseball. That's what I'm going to blame it on. And T ball, yes. is because my jersey was also swimming. On. That w- that was the reason. Every time it went down to my knees. Good at T ball. Exactly had to be the reason. I, uh, Dennis chiming in on Facebook says uh, Rock definitely goes no. Oh buttons. yeah. Well, when you're Rockabaco, you can you, you can know, go no buttons. You can. You yeah. can go no buttons. What's you can get rid of the bottom button here, you know, and cut off the sleeves. Cut off the sleeves. Yeah, like Ben McDonald did with his Hawaiian shirt, his Orioles Hawaiian. That shirt. That was a great look, uh, Brendan. When you said why you didn't were trans- we do that? Transported back in time. I thought you were gonna say to like the 1800s and your the John Mulaney bit with like the old Victorian yes. nightgown, and you're yeah. like you're playing a game with a giant hoop and a stick, and just <laughs> running through the fields of Kansas, uh, you know. Trying to entertain yourself, yeah. On and you've got a piece of straw in your mouth and an old floppy hat. And if you're not watching the Mass and All Access then you have podcast no idea on we're talking Facebook about. or YouTube, you are lost. Then go for back this and intro. watch the first ever episode of Seinfeld. It's not that funny. <laughs> uh, and Elaine doesn't even exist in it yet. It's crazy. They use a waitress that they thought was going to stick around, and then they end up cutting her character and bringing in Elaine. Good move. Anyway, this is the Seinfeld All Access podcast. Uh, we're going to be talking about. Uh, all right. Brendan, 
Got a lot to talk about here on this podcast. There's nice a lot of Seinfeld it. episodes. <laughs> there are crazy enough, like 10 seasons of this show that we got to get We've through. We've got a lot to go through. Um, all right. We're going to be talking about pitching on this podcast because that has been the dominant theme over the past few days. And finally, the Orioles pitching staff is young. They are talented and they are ready to take some spots in the rotation. Uh, and we're also going to talk a little bit about some movement that we've seen in the minor leagues as well, because we've seen some encouraging signs from some of the top prospects who are still a year or two away from the bigs, but are moving their way up through the system. But Brendan, let's start with the three pitching prospects that we have seen excel over the past week in Baltimore. Alexander Wells, Zach Lowther, and Mike Bauman. And Mike Bauman is the most highly touted of those last night. His debut was the most anticipated. Wells and Lowther debuted earlier in the season. Bauman was his big league debut last night, came in in relief, uh, and he was spectacular last night. Yeah, Bauman's somebody that we thought we would see a bit earlier on in the season. We don't see him until last night. Real and spectacular, to make another Seinfeld reference. Sorry, cut you off. Yeah, there you go. But he makes just six starts in AAA Norfolk and was lights out. In those six starts, he has an ERA of two in 27 innings, strikes out 26. So it was well worthy of a call up, even though he didn't spend a ton of time in AAA. And he looked really good last night. There were some loud outs, but they were loud outs in a deep in the outfield in a hitter friendly ballpark which makes me think if he is at a more pitcher-friendly ballpark, like those are still outs. So if yeah. they're outs in Camden Yards, they're probably outs most places. But he goes three and two-thirds innings, two hits, one strikeout, gives up one unearned run when he comes out of the game. A really solid outing for Mike Bauman and very encouraging. Yeah, Dylan Tate led an inherited run of score, but they scored on an error by Kelvin Gutierrez, who had an up-and-down game. He made some great defensive plays at third, and then by the end of the game, he was all of a sudden making some errors over at the hot corner. But Bauman, yeah, he he is the oldest of all three of these guys. He's 25, turns 26 in a few days. So definitely, as you mentioned, doesn't have that many innings this season, but you want to see what you have in him going into next season. And that's the same reason on last week's podcast we talked about why it made sense to call him up at this point. And on last week's podcast, I talked about how I wanted to see him start games. But if he's not going to start games, this is a good alternative because I, I was not a big fan of what the Orioles did with Lowther early in the season where they, they had him close and then they had him come up and do a spot start with really not that much prep. This, I feel like, is a little bit more okay because you're having him do bulk innings of a game, so you're still giving him a large sample size in a non-high leverage situation, like you're closing a game for Zach Lowther, that you're asking him to do something that he's never really done before in his minor league career in a high leverage, high pressure situation where he doesn't really know how to prepare for this kind of situation. So this, I feel like, is second to starting. I would still probably prefer to see him start at some point over the last three weeks of the season, but this role, I feel like, is also suited for Bauman. Yeah, it's kind of funny. It seemed a little bit like the Orioles were implementing the popular minor league strategy that they were implementing, which was you pretty much planned for two bulk starters throughout the game 
and they each pitch like three or four innings, you get four innings out of Alexander Wells and you get three and two thirds out of Mike Bauman. It kind yeah. of felt like that strategy a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a, something that they've deployed in the minor leagues this year because, and I don't know if they're going to do this going forward because of the weird 2020, I think it was partly due to the fact that these guys didn't have regular innings right. last year. So, you know, for a similar reason to why a lot of fans ask why Grayson Rodriguez hasn't been allowed to pitch into the seventh, it's because he didn't pitch in games last year and was shut down for half the season like all of baseball was. So it it gives an opportunity for just three weeks of games to get extended looks at these guys without having to throw them out once every five days um, because you still have Matt Harvey in the rotation. You still have John Means in the rotation. You have Keegan Aiken making regular starts. This kind of makes sense for right now, I think. And I'd still definitely prefer to have Mike yeah. Bauman making starts. But at this point, with the additions of Bauman, Wells, and Lowther, you would probably need a six-man rotation. And I'm not really sure if Brandon Hyde is going to want to do that at this point, especially we don't know when Bruce Zimmerman might be coming back. So yeah. there's six or seven guys over the next few weeks that could probably you could justify them making starts every five days. Right. There's just a few too many at this point. Yeah. And it maybe gives them a little bit of an advantage, the pitcher that comes in out of the bullpen, because they get to face a lineup a few times. Uh, so, you know, they can kind of get a sense of the other team. And the other team's usually spending most of their prep on the starting pitcher going into a game. So it's not like the Royals went into this game thinking as much about Mike Bauman, as they did about Alexander Wells, they were mostly prepping for Alexander Wells coming into this game, I think. Right. You know, so they are a little bit more unprepared for facing the guy who's doing bulk innings out of the bullpen. And of these three guys of Bauman, Lowther, Wells, I would probably prefer Wells to be the one that was in the bullpen getting those bulk innings in relief. But he did look good last night. Yeah. I mean, Alexander Wells throughout the season, he hasn't been particularly flashy in any game that he started. But unlike Zach Lowther, he really hasn't blown up in a start. And he's just been kind of consistently average, it seems like, with Alexander Wells. Yeah. Last night goes four innings, five hits, two earned runs, two strikeouts. You'll take four innings two earned out of Alexander Wells at this point. He hasn't been, like I said, has not been overwhelmingly good, but he hasn't made any glaring mistakes, and he's just looked pretty solid. It, it's interesting because you have two different, very different pitchers in Alexander Wells and Mike Bauman last night, and Wells is a little bit of a diminutive stature on the mound. I know he's like, what, six foot, six one, but he looks kind of small out there. Um, he's very upright. He's a lefty, obviously, and he's throwing all kinds of junk at hitters. Then you have massive, big Mike Bauman coming out of the bullpen, who's huge and has great ride to his stuff. I mean, he's not throwing 98-99, but you can tell why his fastball has been so effective in the minor leagues because that thing looks way faster coming out of his hand at 95 miles an hour than some people's 98. It, it, I mean, that is what the future of kind of the fastball is, is not necessarily, yes, velocity is, is hugely important for pitchers and for fastballs, but if you can have ride on your fastball, that's something that the Orioles have targeted. That's partly why they got Carlos Tavera in the fifth round of the draft. It's something that they are trying to work with with their pitchers. I mean, Bauman's fastball was at 94, 95 miles an hour, but it was blowing hitters away because it was it, it had a great spin rate and it seemed like it was rising in the zone yeah Bauman's not like one of the bigger pitchers in baseball but he's still 6'4 
And a lot of yeah. hitters, when they're talking about, I, well, I know he's not too. He's not like right. McKenzie, uh, who's the pitcher for the Tristan McKenzie for the yes. Cleveland? And then there's like Forrest. There's Forrest Whitley for the Astros, who's the same thing. He's like yeah. six foot seven. But <laughs> like when you talk about somebody like a Tyler Glass now, who's what six six six? He's huge. Yeah, he's huge. The fastball, it, I think he throws closer to like 98, but it looks like 105 because yeah. by the time he gets done with his stride and delivers it, yeah. he's not throwing it from the mound. He is throwing it far ahead of that. Right. So it looks like the fastball is getting on them a lot quicker. And Mike Bauman's fastball last night looked a lot faster than 95. Yeah, and then you have Alexander Wells who throws all kinds of junk. Uh, he actually has been throwing his fastball more than 50% of the time, which is something that I don't know if he's going to be able to keep that up because his fastball in comparison to a Mike Bauman sits around 89, maybe 90 miles an hour, but his off speed is incredibly slow. He's got a great curveball that averages like 74 miles an hour. And I was looking at other pitchers around baseball who have been successful with a curveball that slow because that's a pretty slow pitch to throw that's not like an EFIS pitch. And it's he's in a category with some other crafty lefties. Dallas Keuchel, Hyunjin Ryu, Wade Miley, guys who are able to pitch, probably going to be able to pitch. Some of these guys are already in their 30s, and they might be able to pitch into their late 30s because they don't rely on overpowering stuff. They've never been amazing in their career. I mean, Hyunjin Ryu has gotten some Cy Young votes over the course of his career. You know, Wade Miley, of course, had an ill-fated stint in Baltimore, but was pretty good after that. Some guys that maybe don't have the highest of peaks, but have longevity. And that's the path that you can see for Alexander Wells. Yeah, and he's so unpredictable, too. Yes. You don't know what you're getting with Alexander Wells. I forget exactly who the hitter was last night, but Wells was in a 3-1 count, and he threw a top-of-the-zone 73-mile-an-hour yeah. curveball. What is that? It's, pick it, it's pitching backwards. And yeah. that's, that's something that credit to uh, Kevin Brown and Ben McDonald during the broadcast last night for kind of breaking that down. And they said it happens with Lowther, but more to a greater extent to Alexander Wells. It's pitching a, throwing a non-fastball in a fastball count. Right. It, it is relying on that stuff. And the, like you said, the, the ability to throw those pitches high in the zone too, I mean, you got to be careful because those kind of pitches can get hit. Usually you want to bury your curveball or bury your slider, but if you can throw it high in the zone and get swings and misses... That's pretty impressive, too. Yeah, that's kind of a new trend. I know Lucas Giolito has kind of popular, popularized the high changeup over yeah. the last few years. You're seeing more and more of the high off-speed pitches, but it works for Alexander Wells because he's not going to overwhelm you with a great fastball or fantastic movement on a lot of his pitches. But if he can keep it unpredictable, he's going to be effective. Yeah. Yeah, he throws that fastball over 50% of the time, as mentioned, but it's the off-speed that he changes up. So he's, you know... Literally, change up. He's right. got his change up. He throws about 15% of the time, slider 15% of the time, and his curveball about 15% of the time. And the difference in miles per hour with these pitches allows him to be more unpredictable. So even though he's not hitting 95, 96 with his fastball, there's still a 20 mile per hour, 25 mile per hour gap between his, or 25, no, 15 mile per hour gap, I guess, 16, closer to 20 between his curveball, his slowest pitch, and his fastball, his fastest. So 89 miles per hour with his fastball, 74 with his curveball. It's a difference in, what, 15 miles per hour? Around, yeah. So basically, 
when he throws that curveball consistently or that slider at 81, 82 miles an hour, then he comes with the fastball that's 89. That 89 looks like it's 95 because of the slow stuff you've just been seeing. And he probably is going to get hit occasionally. Like he, he's not going to go nine innings, 10 strikeouts. He's not that kind of pitcher. And he will get hit if a hitter guesses correctly. But if he's able to continue to be unpredictable, those guesses are going to be fewer and further between that are actually guessing right on what he's throwing to you because his counts and what he uses in those counts are so unpredictable. Right. The only thing, though, like you said, it it, it does kind of limit his ceiling in terms right. of how good he can be as a starter long term. And I think the Orioles are right to stick with him as a starter for now because you you might as well, and he's been pretty good and just see what you can get out of him and, and push him to try to see what his ceiling is. But because he doesn't have that great fastball to go to, he can get into some serious trouble when he doesn't have a fallback pitch. Right. You know, he if he is really messing with, uh, if his fastball is getting hit hard, he's just going to have to keep throwing junk. And hitters will probably lay off that and they'll just sit on the fastball. Yeah, he doesn't really have a go-to out pitch yeah. at this point, which can obviously be an issue, but you're not looking at Alexander Wells and saying you need to be a number one, number two right. starter in the rotation. You're going to be happy if Alexander Wells is a solid number four, number five, back half of the rotation type of guy. As of right now, it seems like he certainly has that potential, and if not, I think he's going to be a really solid innings eater out of the bullpen. And the other guy that we haven't yet delved into, Zach Lowther, who had a good start a couple days ago. Six innings, only two strikeouts, and he's was a strikeout artist back to his days at Xavier and then throughout the Orioles minor league system. He led the Orioles prospects, led all of Orioles minor leaguers in strikeouts in 2019 when he was with Bowie. So he's not getting the strikeout so far, but look, we saw him really struggle early on in the season. It, when he made that spot start against the Red Sox, he really got hit hard, couldn't even get out of the second or third inning. Um, and then since then has struggled, struggled a little bit in AAA, had injuries, and now is back up. And I, I think it's a similar, he's somewhere in between a Mike Bauman and an Alexander Wells because his stuff is a little bit faster. It's got a little bit better velo than Alexander Wells. But it's not up to the point of a Mike Bauman. So that's where why he also falls in between them in the prospect rankings. He, he falls right around 22 in the prospect rankings. Bauman's up at 10. Lowther's, or, uh, sorry, Wells is down at like 23 because he is somewhere in between that. He's not going to be a, a blow-you-away kind of guy, but he's also not going to be a crafty lefty. He has to find success in between. Yeah, and you mentioned only two strikeouts in the six innings pitched. But he also only allowed three hits in one earned run. He pitched very effectively in that game. And he said afterwards that he was just kind of had to fix some mechanical things. And then once he came back up to the majors, it felt like things were clicking a little bit more. And the biggest difference in the start that he just made versus the start where he blew up against the Boston Red Sox, he didn't make any glaring mistakes. Yeah. The start against the Red Sox, he just had some really bad pitches in bad places. And even though he wasn't striking a ton of guys out in this start against Kansas City, he was making good pitches. He was getting effective outs. He was trusting his defense. So the mechanical issues at least seem to have been corrected somewhat, and he was able to be really effective. Yeah, 118 BABIP, batting average of balls in play. That'll play. 
Yeah. Even if you're not striking guys out at a high rate, you're keeping the ball down enough and you're changing speeds enough that they're not barreling up baseballs. That's the most important thing. Right. So he may, I don't know where he, exactly, you know, his sweet spot is going to be in terms of swinging, swing and misses and a low BABIP, but he's going to have to find some some kind of middle ground there. And the only run he gives up is a solo shot to Hans Alberto, and Orioles fans know how well Alberto hits against lefties. True, yeah. Um, so three guys, all three of these guys, incredibly promising over the past week. I don't know how much, how long they're going to be able to keep this up, but it is a natural, you know, progression towards the mean from what we've seen, considering how little we've seen from the pitching prospects at the big league level this year. We saw Dean Kramer struggle. We saw Keegan Aiken. He's had his struggles over the season. He's now pitching a little bit better. And obviously, Lowther struggled to start the season. Wells was just so-so, and Bauman was injured. Now, all of these guys, when it rains, it pours. All these guys are coming up. They're all pitching, and they're all pitching well. And this is what we were hoping we would get. It's similar to our infield discussion from a week ago, that this is what fans were hoping 2021 would be about, seeing potential building blocks for the future. Maybe not your Adley Rutschman or your Grayson Rodriguez or your D.L. Hall, but seeing the guys that you could build a foundation on in terms of uh, pitching prospects. Yeah, we talked, what, a few weeks ago where we were kind of saying that we were pretty discouraged with how the pitching prospects as a whole looked because Dean Kramer and Keegan Aiken had not been successful. Dean Kramer was pretty bad at the major league level. Keegan Aiken had not yet had his turnaround at the major league level where he's made some really solid consecutive starts here. And Mike Bauman, Zach Lowther, and Alexander Wells were all kind of struggling in their respective places in the minors. Mike Bauman, I think at that point, was still in double A. Zach Lowther was struggling at triple A, as was Alexander Wells. And when you were looking at the pitching prospects as a whole, yes, you still had Grayson Rodriguez. Yes, you still had D.L. Hall but you needed to fill out the rotation and the bullpen with some of the you know 10 to 30 prospects on the Orioles' top 30 rather than the 1 through 10. Right. And it was discouraging to see the 10 through 30 not really panning out the way that we had hoped. But with all of these guys, aside from really Dean Kramer out of that list, seeming to have turned somewhat of a corner here, the conversation goes from, we pretty much just have Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall to look at at the top to these 10 through 30 prospects are really looking good and are encouraging at the major league level. And how much of this is real and how much of it is just September? It's a small sample size. It's tough to tell. And that's the job of Brandon Hyde in the front office to determine how much you have faith in each of these specific guys. And also to wonder if it's sustainable. So so why now? Why is this time different for Alexander Wells and Zach Lowther and Mike Bauman? And why is it different from what we saw from Dean Kramer last year? Of course, we saw Dean Kramer's first three starts last September actually made his debut on September 6th, so two days ago, a year ago. And he's his first three starts went six innings, five innings, five innings, one earned run in each of those starts. And we thought this guy is going to be cemented in the rotation going forward. We haven't even seen that big of a sample size from Lowther, Wells, or Bauman, but we're already talking about them like they could stick around. So why should we be encouraged about Bauman, Lowther, and Wells now and not fall into the back of our mind, the voice in the back of our head that says, this is just another Dean Kramer situation. This is not going to last. 
it's a fair question to yeah. ask because Dean Kramer going into the season, we were even more encouraged about Dean Kramer than we were probably about any of these guys. Kramer, we would probably put kind of in the same tier as a Mike Bauman where the numbers are good, which is true for all three of these guys who have debuted so far. And the stuff also looks really, really good, which is probably what we can say most about Mike Bauman at this point. Dean Kramer, I would say, was probably the most impressive of any of the guys that we've talked about in his September debut. It's hard to not fall into that trap a little bit with some of these guys that are debuting in September, like you said. I, I don't know. I mean, it's a good, it's a fair question to ask because we don't really know yep. what the issues were with Dean Kramer this year, why last September did not translate into next season. We can assume that it should, I suppose, but it clearly didn't for Kramer. Well, I think previous Septembers especially have been minefields in terms of I think it was Buck Walter that said never believe anything you see in September because rosters would go from 25 to 30 guys and you would start to see all kinds of guys that you had never heard of before and would never see again because they were just looking to literally fill their roster now the rosters are going from 26 to 28 it's a little bit we've talked about it's a little bit different because you're not necessarily just fill adding five guys who aren't necessarily big leaguers to your roster, to your bullpen especially, and just hoping that they pan out. You are adding guys uh, for playoff teams. You're adding guys that you think can give you consistent depth for the, a stretch run. And for other teams, you may be adding a prospect or two, but they're probably going to be a pretty good prospect if they're getting called up in September 2021 as opposed to September 2019. Right. So you should still take... September numbers a little bit with a grain of salt. You should discount them slightly because odds are they're going up against a little bit worse competition. You've also had, you know, the dichotomy between the buyers and sellers. At this point in the season, you have your buyers who have already bought and you have absolutely loaded teams like the Dodgers. Then you've got teams that have already sold like the Royals that have already given away some of their, their better players and they are left with a shell of a roster pretty much. So you should still treat all of the the success that a player might have in September with caution. But to me, what separates this September from previous ones is that you just have a sheer volume of guys. You have three guys right now that even if all three of them, you know, all three of them could have success in September, odds are it's going to be real for one or two of these guys. You know, it, it, odds are not all three of these guys are going to have great Septembers and then go on to never make it and and never reach that kind of heights again so it, it, similar to our our conversation a couple weeks ago it's just the sheer volume of these guys no not every one of these guys is going to hit we're not saying that wells lowther and bauman are going to be three or three fixtures in a rotation for the next 10 years but maybe one of or two of them will and that's what you need and Two points I want to make about the Dean Kramer comparison. The first is that Dean Kramer is still a young pitching prospect. We are not giving up on Dean Kramer. I think it's fair to look at the September he had and say, hopefully Dean Kramer can get back to that point. You're just looking for Dean Kramer to, you know, 
whether it's fix mechanical things or figure out some command or whatever it is with Dean Kramer that was not working for him this season, the goal is to get Dean Kramer back to where he was when he made his September debut. So it's not like he didn't flash at all, and then we still really haven't seen much from him. The other thing that's important to keep in mind with Dean Kramer is that Mike Bauman, Zach Lowther, and Alexander Wells were all September call-ups after a full season of playing minor league baseball. Yeah. Where Dean Kramer did not get to play minor league baseball until he was called up for the Orioles. So Dean Kramer didn't go from let's have some AAA experience in Norfolk to let's go up to Baltimore one step up in September. Dean Kramer went from working at the alternate site to let's pitch in Baltimore in September. But I think that's also why it was so surprising that he came up and hit the ground running like he did last yeah, year. It, yeah, Because he, he was not even in a, a real rhythm. I mean, I mean, the alternate site can prepare you a certain amount, but he was going up against guys in non-real games at the alternate site, and all of a sudden he's pitching against the Yankees, the Red Sox, and then the Yankees again. But I suppose the case to be made there, particularly looking at a Mike Bauman versus Dean Kramer, is that with Mike Bauman's hopeful success here in September, he's only thrown three and two-thirds innings so far, and we're hoping that success continues throughout the month. You can also look at that sample size and say, okay, he was good for six starts in AAA Norfolk, and he has this September sample size yeah. for the Orioles, whereas Dean Kramer, it was he only has this small sample size with the Orioles in September. Yeah, That was had, all you had there. In 2019, he did appear in four games for AAA Norfolk, but... Then you have the entire shutdown at the beginning of 2020. Right. So he was very far removed from that amount of time. Exactly. From that experience. So with Bauman, at least you can kind of group the success at AAA with the hopeful success at the major league level going into next year. Right. And all of these guys develop at different rates. Lowther right now is 25. Wells is actually the youngest at 24. Bauman is 25, turns 26 in a couple days. And Dean Kramer is 25. So you have 24, 25, 25, and 26. That's four guys right in that range. And just the hope is that one or two of them will be able to get things together over the next couple years. Right. So it there is definitely some understandable skepticism when it comes to seeing September, good September numbers from pitching prospects or any prospects for that matter. You know, we've, we've seen it from Austin Hayes. Austin Hayes was the king of September for in 2017 and then in 2019. But, and it, the question was, is this guy going to be a gold glove, all-star caliber center fielder, or is he just totally a flash in the pan and he's, he's not going to pan out. And he was somewhere in between. The, the truth lies somewhere in between. And for Dean Kramer, the hope is he has the incredible high of that September 2020. He has the incredible low of what has been this 2021 season for him. And where he is as a pitcher is going to be somewhere in between. Right. And it's it's important to keep in mind that, yes, it's you're hopeful that these guys turn into starters. But realistically, if one of... Mike Bauman, Zach Lowther, Alexander Wells turns into a reliable rotation piece, you probably count that as a win. Right. So for the month of September, sit back, relax, enjoy watching three young Orioles pitching prospects, hopefully succeed in September, and then you're left with a really good question going into the offseason, which is which one of these guys are you going to throw in the rotation for next year? Because hopefully all of them look good enough to 
at least make an argument for a spot next year. So you mentioned Bruce Zimmerman coming back, potentially. So he had an injury that kept him out for a long time, and then he's rehabbing, and then he has an ankle injury that unfortunately put him on the 60-day IL. However, he is throwing a bullpen session later this week. Got three weeks left in the season. You might be able to see him come back. He had an ERA under five in the rotation at the big league level. I would think at least if he's able to come back in this 2021 season, you could use him out of the bullpen as a as a bulk guy. You could start him for some games. But he showed a good amount that you're going to at least keep him in the mix, keep him on the big league roster to start 2022. Yeah, he should at least be in a bulk bullpen role when he comes back, if nothing else. I mean, I know the rotation is a little bit crowded at this point. Truthfully, I don't think there's much of a point in giving Matt Harvey a bunch of starts because he's not going to be on the team next year and well presumably not going to be on the team next year and he's older and like what's what's that doing for you well yeah they're going to keep starting him more than likely in an ideal world I'd say you probably throw Bruce Zimmerman in there because you're just trying to see what you have with Bruce Zimmerman but if he comes in in a Mike Bauman-esque role from last night throws you know three four innings that's probably enough to see what you have in Bruce Zimmerman. They've been going start to start with Harvey because he's handling a much bigger workload than he has had to handle in the past few years. Right. Is This is the deepest he's gone into a season since 2018, I believe. Yeah. So he may they may just kind of shut him down pretty much. Yeah. And that may be a mutual decision between Harvey and right. and what's, the front office. What's the point in yeah. starting Matt Harvey? It's not a young pitcher that you need to see something from. Yeah, they but they do it. Hyde loves the fact that he wants to get the ball. I yes, mean, and and Harvey has said, you know, so long as he's his arm isn't falling off, he wants to keep getting the ball every fifth day, and he wants to show that he can be healthy for an entire season because he's going into free agency, where odds are that you know there's not going to be a whole lot of interest for a guy that has an ERA over six, but he's still going to get one more contract. Right. So he wants to show, hey, I can pitch thirty starts. That's that's valuable at least sure. durability. Sure. So. The rotation being crowded, I Brandon Hyde said yesterday, anybody is a candidate to start or to, to come out of the bullpen yeah. from now on. And, he, and he's not wrong. But going into the offseason, you are set up to have John Means obviously returning in your rotation. Probably, I would at least for now, stick Bruce Zimmerman in your rotation going into next season. You had a four eight three ERA this season when he was healthy. He's older, so you absolutely, he gets priority in terms of what you need to see from him. Have him pitch in the rotation until he shows he can't do it. Then you've got the crop of young guys in Bauman, Lowther, Wells, and Aiken. That's six guys in total that you could make a legitimate case to start games next year. Which is a, again, fantastic problem to have. It is a good problem to have. But I think it'll probably be a similar situation that we've talked about this year with the Orioles infield, which was play as many guys as you can, see if you have anything there, exhaust all of your options until you get to the prospects. So I think going into next year, and this is probably more of an off-season discussion that I'm sure we'll have, the Orioles will probably throw somebody like Bruce Zimmerman in the rotation because he's a little bit older than guys like Bauman, Lowther, and Wells. See if they have anything in Bruce Zimmerman. If not, no harm, no foul. Put him in the bullpen. Get Bauman or Lowther or Wells in the rotation solidly there. You've yeah. got to exhaust all of your options with 
the fringe veteran starters before you get into the prospects that are going to have longer auditions. And I think you got to be real careful because we've talked about how you can add to this team in free agency. Got to be real careful not to block guys because all of a sudden you have all these guys who are making their debuts and deserve starts and innings now. You're almost reaching a crunch. It's almost going to be difficult Similar to the discussion we had, uh, that's my phrase of the day, similar to the discussion. Similar to the discussion we had in the offseason about the outfield. How are you going to fit all these guys when you have Anthony Santander, Cedric Mullins, DJ Stewart, Austin Hayes, and Yusniel Diaz coming up? Kind of worked itself out. And I expect, you know, never want to see it, but injuries will probably affect this discussion. But don't want to block one of these guys. They're all of a sudden now in a point where they're, you could make a case for any of these guys to start games next year. I know you want to solidify your rotation with a legitimate major league starter next year, but you want to make sure you give these guys as much of an opportunity as possible to prove that they can stick here. Do the Orioles not need to sign a free agent? My column. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that they, I think they probably do need to sign. Somebody. They probably do, but yeah. we just na- listed six guys who could start games next year. Good problems to have. Good problems to have. And somebody brought up in the chat, the, uh, Zach Britton being a failed starter all those years ago, and and look what happened to him. They use him in the, the bullpen. All of a sudden, he becomes an all-star closer. Mariano Rivera was a failed starter. Yeah, a lot of, so that could that's a potential path for a lot of these guys. And unfortunately, Jorge Lopez just got injured, but maybe that's a, a path for Jorge Lopez. He's uh, looked solid in the bullpen so far. He has. Good I options. Hope his, I hope his season isn't, isn't done. But if it is, he's solid, solidly in your 2022 bullpen. On opening day. I'd say so. I think you could say. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, you have all those guys. And and one other thing I want to touch on when it comes to pitching. How much of these pitchers, we've been ragging on the pitchers this year because it has been the worst staff in baseball. Is it fair to lay any of the criticism at the feet of Austin Wins, Chancisco, and Pedro Severino? And... Are we being unfairly harsh to a pitching staff that is having to throw to a below-average group of catchers? Layered answer there. Is it fair to throw any of the criticism on the catchers? Yes, I think it's fair to throw some. Is it also fair to say that this would still probably be the worst rotation and pitching staff in baseball if they had better catchers? I think that's also probably fair to say. The the catchers are not going to completely make up your ERA falters. They're not going to magically make some number two and number three starters appear, but a better catcher would certainly help. I mean, Pedro Severino and Austin Wins are not great defensive catchers, and that can impact you in a lot of ways, whether it's framing, whether it's not feeling confident that you can bury a curveball in the dirt and your catcher is going to block it. So it could certainly help a pitching rotation. It could certainly help a young pitching rotation. Keeping runners on or keeping right. running runners honest. Throwing out base runners. Yeah. It, there's a lot of things that go into it, and I think it's fair to throw some of the blame on the catchers. And I think it's also fair to say once we see Adley Rutschman, we'll see just how much of a difference that right. makes. Right. But it's not fair to throw all of it on the catchers. You still need good pitching. And even Adley Rutschman is going to have some time to get used to calling a game and being a big league catcher behind right. the plate. However, I think day one, he's going to be a better defensive catcher than well, Chancisco. Going into the drafts, there were some scouts that said that 
Adley could go directly from the draft yeah. to the majors and be a top 10 defensive catcher. Which is perhaps a little hyper hyperbolic. But Probably, but still. It, it shows just how advanced he is. Yes. Um, and I think that that will make a big difference. Pedro Severino is sixth in the sixth percentile, according to StatCast, in pitch framing. Austin wins is in the third percentile in pitch framing. It's not good. That's... It's bad, Absolutely killer for a lot of your pitchers because that is a borderline pitch that you're not getting that could change at-bats, change outings. That's huge. Yeah. And if you're not throwing out base runners, which Pedro Severino has been bad at this year, that's also huge because that's a runner in scoring position that wasn't before. There, I think one of the runs that Alexander Wells gave up last night, it was a runner on first, stole second. Pedro Severino wasn't able to throw him out. And then a bloop single, and he comes home. So, really didn't give up much hard contact, but because the Royals and other teams, like the Rays, they're going to have to face a million times, do the right things, and they move runners over. And if you don't have a catcher that can keep them, throw behind runners and throw runners out and keep them honest, that hurts you as well. Yeah, and if you want to talk about a rotation that could really, really use a good pitch framer. Yes. The Baltimore Orioles have John Means, who does not overwhelm you with a fastball. Zach Lowther, who does not overwhelm you with a fastball. Alexander Wells, who certainly does not overwhelm you with a fastball. All three of those guys make good pitches in good spots, and that's how they get outs. Yes. And a good pitch framer would go a really, really long way for a few guys that are not throwing you Grayson Rodriguez 100 miles an hour. Yes, because also you're not going to get a whole lot of swings and misses with these guys. Right, they need to hit their spots to be successful. You need called strikes, yeah. Um, so I think that Adley should be a massive boon for the pitchers in that regard, and hopefully they get that sooner rather than later um, in terms of the help that they get from from the backstop. Yes. Um, that'll be something to watch. I think it'll be interesting. Oh, and, and the same thing with the defense behind these pitchers. The same reason that Mike Elias targeted Freddie Galvis, a good defensive shortstop, and Jose Iglesias, a good defensive shortstop, in free agency is because a good defensive shortstop will always help your pitching staff. And a good de defensive second baseman will always help your pitching staff. And you hope Jemai Jones can turn into that. So that's why I feel like we've seen now Jorge Mateo is showing some flashes. I don't know if he's going to be in true, he's, it may not be a gold glove caliber shortstop, but he's athletic, he's fast, he gets to the ball, he's got a pretty good arm, he's playing a solid defensive shortstop. Jemai Jones has been up and down defensively. Kelvin Gutierrez, besides those that error last night, has been good at third base, and you saw how much that helped Alexander Wells when he's getting those outs that he might not get otherwise. Michael Franco was not helping any pitchers. No. He was not helping anybody on the, the Orioles pitching staff. And ultimately, guys have to make pitches and they have to work through any base runners that get on via errors or via plays that just aren't made. But yeah, having a good infield defense is a massive help for young pitchers. Yes, and especially with guys like Lowther and Wells who are often pitching to contact because they didn't get a ton of strikeouts. But Paul, it's funny that you mention a good defensive shortstop in Jose Iglesias. Yeah. Uh, can we just take a minute to, to dunk on... This that I don't want to dunk on Jose. He's, he's not going to dunk on Jose Iglesias. But Maybe the Angels franchise. The trade in general yeah. is a massive win for the Baltimore Orioles. Jose Iglesias, recently released by the LA Angels, was not good this year. He had a WAR of negative one point two. 
hitting just 261, a 673 OPS. He was very good for the Baltimore Orioles in 2020, but we both said going into the year it would be shocking if Jose Iglesias repeats that kind of production. He clearly did not. And the Orioles in return get two good pitching prospects. They get Garrett Stallings and Gene Pinto, who was kind of the throw-in at that point, but has a 254 ERA with 12.1 Ks per nine over multiple levels in the minor leagues this year. That's a massive win for Michael Elias and the Orioles in that trade. Yeah, Garrett Stallings has been just so-so. He's 23 years old. Pitt started out the season at high A, and he's now with double A. He's got a 4.55 ERA through those two levels. Uh, however, he is, you know, a, still a high upside potential pitcher that you have. He's just another guy that you can throw out there. And then Gene Pinto, who has been one of the, you, you mentioned a throw-in in that deal. One of the, uh, you know, one of the, the more bright spots in the Orioles uh, minor league system. Yeah. Un, you know, surprisingly, not talked about as much. He's not in any top 30s, but keep an eye on this guy. Yeah, and Freddie Galvis with his time with the Orioles, has a war of one before he's dealt the deadline. Ramon Rios has a war of 1.5. Yeah. So both of those guys pretty far and away outperformed Jose Iglesias this year. And I got to give it to Bobby Blanco, our producer. I didn't even notice this. He signed with the, the Red Sox. I didn't even know that. Wow. We are so have our heads so far into the Orioles 40-man roster that we uh, didn't even notice, but Bobby noticed. Jose Iglesias signed and debuted with the Red Sox, so... They're, they're using him as a depth piece down the, the stretch. Yeah. And hey, Orioles can still re-sign him in the offseason if they want to. They that, could. That was one of the biggest things I remember mentioning about the deal. It's the same thing with Alex Cobb, who's going to be a free agent. The Orioles can still sign these guys. I knocked my microphone over. Can still sign these guys if they want to. Yeah. So the Orioles traded away Jose Iglesias. They traded away Freddie Galvis. They can still re-sign these guys if they want to in the offseason. And again, not to... You can have your cake and eat it too, Brendan. Right. It, it's a little bit of vindication because we both said this was a good trade for the Orioles. You can replace Jose Iglesias and his production. He's not going to hit 360 for somebody somewhere else and was clearly not good enough with the Angels to stick around. Right. So a great trade for the Baltimore Orioles. Absolutely. Uh, a couple other things we should mention before we get out of here. Kyle Stowers. Woo. Talk about a fast riser. Not Johnny Riser. I'm going to make that joke every time. Uh, he is in AAA now. He is 23 years old, second-round pick in 2019. He has been incredibly impressive. Maybe the, the Orioles' minor league player of the year this year. Probably will be. He started the season on high A Aberdeen, mashed the ball there, played good defense in center field and the corner outfields, and... Mashed in double-A buoy and just got the call up to triple-A. Uh, incredibly athletic, fast. This guy has a, a very high ceiling. And talk about prospects that you weren't expecting to blossom this quickly. I think the ceiling was always high for Kyle Stowers, but a year ago, he was like the 20th-ranked prospect. Now he's the 11th-ranked prospect, and you can make a case he's a top-10 prospect in the system now. Yeah. He had a 900 OPS in 36 games with high A Aberdeen and then goes up to double A Bowie and is better. Yeah. In 66 games, 67 hits, a 283 batting average, a 938 OPS, and 17 homers. His 24 homers through single A and double A lead the Orioles organ organization in the minor leagues. He's ahead of Adley Rutschman, who's in second place. 
But yeah, at 23 years old, he is one of the better power bats in the Orioles system, if not the best power bat in the Orioles system. And he's also good enough defensively to play center field, which means he is probably going to be a very good corner outfielder. I mean, look at Austin Hayes. Good enough to play center field makes him a pretty much elite corner outfielder defensively. Yeah, and I'm excited to see what he's going to look like in a year or two because he still has a a pretty thin frame at this point. I look at Ryan McKenna from a couple years ago as a guy who had a thin frame, was a speedy outfielder, and then added a ton of bulk and was hitting a bunch of home runs in the minor leagues. If Kyle Stowers, and I'm sure that he probably will get with the strength and conditioning coaches now uh, during the offseason, and he can add bulk, you could talk about a a legitimate power threat yeah. in AAA. And then, you know, he's only a short step away from the big leagues. He's amazingly already passed using Neil Diaz. In Absolutely. Terms of development. Yeah. And Diaz is still a young guy. He's 24, but Kyle Stowers probably could get called up before using Neil Diaz. He's passed using Neil Diaz, and obviously there's the health concerns with Heston Kerstad. He hasn't been able to play in the minors. Kyle Stowers has pretty quickly become probably the best corner outfielder in the Orioles system at this point. Yeah, and we definitely won't see him on the major league team through the last three weeks. They're no. going to keep him down in AAA Norfolk because that season goes into October, just as the major league team does. And he's also not on the 40-man roster. And something to mention here also is we're probably not going to see... There, there's a reason that certain guys are not going to debut this year, and I think Robert Newstrom is in that category. Maybe I'm wrong with some of these guys, but... The way I'm looking at it, Newstrom, Cody Sedlock, Blaine Knight, Kevin Smith, probably not going to be debuting this year, partly because if you add them to the 40-man roster now and you go into the offseason with them on your 40-man roster and we hit the unlikely possibility of a work stoppage during the offseason, which they have to renegotiate the collective bargaining agreement, so a work stoppage is certainly on the table. We obviously hope it doesn't come to that. And they're not playing major league games, the guys who are on the 40-man roster can, cannot then play minor league games. So you're hampering them. So if Adley Rutschman is on your 40-man roster in the offseason and the minor league season starts back up before the major league season does, knock on wood, let's hope that doesn't happen, Adley Rutschman is just sitting at home. He can't play in those minor league games. Right. So safer at that point to keep them off the 40-man roster, start them at, say, AAA for next season, yes. and then call them up at some point. And then add them yeah, add them to the 40-man roster when you call them up. Uh, just something to keep in mind. little weird rule. Inside baseball. But that's, yeah. And hopefully we don't have a work stoppage. That'll be... Yeah. I don't know what we're going to talk about during the, <laughs> on those podcasts. Let's not think about it. All nope. right. Uh, let's uh, wrap up the podcast now. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. If you were tuning in live, of course, you can tune in live on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. After the fact, of course, any of your favorite podcast platforms you can catch us on. He's at Brendan Morty on Twitter. I'm at Paul Mancano on Twitter. Thanks to Bobby Blanco, our producer. And we will be back in a week talking more O's baseball.